The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and an investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to find food truth and connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And today I'm absolutely delighted and honored to have with me Ken Meter. Ken is the director of the Crossroads Resource Center based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I met Ken at the INCA meeting, which stands for the Iowa Network for Community Agriculture. And I was giving a talk on childhood obesity, and Ken was giving a talk on agriculture and community food service, uh, excuse me, food systems. And you saw the trend of childhood obesity, Ken, and you matched that with a with a graph that you had on corn syrup production or corn production primarily. And we connected the dots, and we've been friends ever since. So welcome. It's great to be here, Melinda. Ken, as I was telling you before the show, I was looking through your website, and again, uh, for people who want to take a look at these wonderful reports and your history, it's the Crossroads Resource Center, where you are really dedicated to looking at how our community works with the food system. So you look at neighborhood sustainability indicators, you look at local economic studies, neighborhoods ethnic and culture and local history and how that all meshes together to create viable communities. And we notice a declining economy. We see the ravages of that economy on our public health. And it looks like your work shows that if we can maybe fix our rural communities and look at community development from a food system standpoint, we might be on the road to recovery. I think that's true. So tell me a little bit about your your work, your previous work, and your research. I know that you did a lot of work on the first farm crisis as an award-winning independent journalist. What have you learned? Well, a lot of what I've really learned and, and a lot of what drives the work I do today came from working alongside a dairy farmer back in 1978 who was the chair of a local environmental committee in his neighborhood in Minnesota. And he was part of a neighborhood of farmers that had all started to farm in the 1950s and really were giving lie to the stereotype that farmers are rugged independents who can't work together because this is a community of folks who raised their kids together, shared equipment, shared stories, really thought about themselves as a community of farmers and not simply as folks working the land for money. And they gave me some incredible insights into the economy when I was a young journalist learning about agriculture for the first time that it just turns out, as I've done academic studies since then in a couple of universities, um, really these, these insights are not available in the academic literature, and I've had the privilege of carrying some of their stories into some deeper research and into more the public eye. Well, what happened during the farm crisis, and what kind of parallels can we draw from what's, what's going on today with the demise of our rural communities? The farm crisis was a very interesting moment in our history because uh, it really was the time when a lot of our economy was kind of exposed to um, how, how raw it can be for some producers, even though 
farm producers produce a lot of new primary wealth by producing commodities. And really what happened was farmers had taken on a lot of debt in 1973 and 74 because the government asked them to expand to build stronger commercial markets, uh, to export grain to the Soviet Union, to China and other countries. And the government asked farmers to expand at a time when grain prices were quite high because there was a lot of demand. Uh, Russia, was, Soviet Union was buying a lot of grain. And at the prices farmers were getting then, they said, well, I can take on some debt because I think these markets are going to last and I can um, expand and get a bigger farm. But when Russia stopped buying grain in 1974, uh, that market collapsed pretty rapidly. And farmers were now left with a lot of debts they had taken on on the hope that prices would stay high when they didn't stay high. And it took about 10 years for that to work its way through the economy and become obvious to us that we had a wholesale farm crisis on our, ta- our hands precisely because farmers had taken on more debt than they could handle and really now could not pay it back. And for those people who lived through that time, we had thousands of foreclosures, thousands of bankruptcies. We had you know, bankers trying to serve papers on a farmer and getting shot at or killed. We had uh, lots of actions in farm communities and courthouses to stop foreclosure auctions. But we also had this very stark awareness that the farm economy had gone sour for most farmers. And the only way to really recover from that was for banks to write down the debt to maybe 20% or whatever it would take to where a farmer could pay for the cost of farming by farming. And it was a beautiful moment in some respects because the lenders who saw the wisdom of this said that if I foreclose on a farm, I lose a valued customer, but I also lose, I have to take over the farm and deal with that, and it costs me money. And it would be better for me as a banker to write down my, this farm debt and get payments that I can predict and help a farmer stay in the land and help the community be more intact. So it was a good moment when farmers and lenders did some negotiation like that. And of course, we're facing a very identical crisis financially with the home mortgage crisis we've been in in the last few years, where the banks have essentially asked low-income people to finance their need for capital by asking them to take on loans they could not afford. And I think if we were a little closer to farm country, we would have recognized the trouble signs of that far earlier and been able to stop, stop this crisis before it started. So before farmers were advised to get bigger, did we have smaller, more self-sufficient rural communities? Well, in some cases, I think you know, it was about 1973, kind of not really coincidentally the same year that farmers decided to ramp up for farm production, that they really abandoned any effort to raise food for their own families and really decided there was more money to be made in getting a bigger tractor and bigger equipment and basically producing for market full-time rather than trying to sort of divide their time between producing for a market and producing for themselves. But And I think that really represents the year in, in our history, in American history, where farmers lost the choice of making decisions about which market to produce for, whether for local buyers, for their families, or for a, a global market. Because basically... Part of the expansion paradigm was that you totally focus on the export market, you totally focus on getting large and producing as much as possible, and farmers abandoned two other choices they had for markets. You can see that going all the way back to the colonial period in U.S. history. I've taught the economic history of U.S. agriculture at the University of Minnesota, and I've looked at several periods, and you know, really, from 1623, farmers in America were exporting grain. Uh, that was a pretty early thing, and of course, tobacco was a main export early in our history. 
it's not that exports are sort of unusual or that globalization is all that new. We've had a global economy since the birth of our country. But farmers in those days had a choice. They could say, I'd like to either raise food for someone who's a local buyer or for a commodity market, or I can keep some food for my, myself and my family. And gradually those choices that farmers used to have have been taken away from them as the economies become more uh, insistent that people produce commodities for a market. Well, it's interesting because I know you've been involved in these buy fresh, buy local food campaigns and promote them strongly. And in looking at some of the reports at your Crossroads Resource Center, I see this great compilation of different states and different regions within states about finding food in farm country. And I think, you know, as a non, I didn't grow up in a rural community. I grew up in suburbia. And so I went to the supermarket to get my food, as many people do. And so when I see the data you've presented, so for example, in Hawaii, 90% of the food is not produced on the Hawaiian islands. It's imported. So even the cattle that's fattened in Hawaii goes back to the mainland, and then they buy it back in boxes. I'm appalled. And I know I've had conversations with, with folks in Iowa. I've looked at your reports from Minnesota, Iowa, California, Hawaii, etc. And many of the states have the same picture. Yes. They're not producing food for their own people and thereby losing the income that could be uh, focused on a, in a region. It's, it's leaving. So tell me a little bit about your aha moments when you were putting together these Finding Food in the Farm Country reports? Well, I think one aha moment is simply how much data you can find in the public sources that can tell the story and how few people have asked the questions that would lead you to those answers. It's uh, I, I think we tend to think of the farm economy as a matter of how many farms there are and how many soybeans or how many bushels of corn we produce, but we don't often look at this very complex economy from the perspective of communities themselves, and and I've tried to, to make do with data sets that are not geared to answer that question and try to come up with some answers, but data is there, and it, it's sort of, I think it's something farmers feel intuitively and consumers have some sense for, but we don't often look at the hard numbers and see how big these flows away are. Um, the story you told about Hawaii is really not that untypical across the country. Uh, most states I've worked with are importing at least 90% of the food they eat. And, and the only real you know data point we have about that is the amount of food that farmers sell directly to American consumers. And those direct sales are really important, and they're a huge indicator of the, the hunger people have to know who their farmer is and to know where their food came from. Direct food sales between farmers and consumers increased 50% between 2002 and 2007. It's a huge increase. At the same time, all the direct sales between farmers and consumers in the country right now represent 0.4% of the farm commodity sales in this country. It's a very tiny sliver of what farmers produce and what they sell. What policies do you think we need to put into place to change those numbers? Well, we need a very complex array of policies. I was actually talking this morning with the congressional office and laying out a whole set of ideas. And, and one problem is it's such a complicated story, it's hard for people to to stay focused because it looks like a lot of work, and in fact it is. But we, we right now have a system where our tax incentives and our federal farm programs encourage people to get big, encourage some of the traders to get large, encourage the food system to become based on larger corporations and really is most efficient because we assume that bigger is always better. So 
sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not. And the real keystone of that is we give farmers cash for either planting a crop or for when the price goes down for the price they didn't get from that crop. Or in some cases, we've in American history paid farmers not to plant just to, to keep stuff out of production. But those subsidies have a way of encouraging farmers to buy inputs, to produce grain at a cost that's higher than they can get from the market, and it encourages them to buy other inputs, to buy fertilizer. It, it really has the overall effect of taking money out of rural communities. And, and just one data point I could tell you about that is I total up all the interest payments made by all the farmers on all the farm debt we've had in this country since 1913, and I subtracted from that the amount of federal payments that have gone in the farm sector since 1933 when we started having farm policy at the federal level. In those 87-some years, farmers have spent $600 billion more paying interest on farm debt than they've gotten back in, in subsidies. And it's a, it's a remarkably large amount of money. Um, you know, it's, it's the kind of magnitude of what we've put into the stimulus package in Washington, D.C. in the last year. And that's all money that farmers had in their hands one time. They put it into the banking system. It often doesn't come back to farm country. And to me, that number is really poignant because it says the way we subsidize our farm product products now essentially takes money away from farmers, takes money away from rural communities, and it puts that money in someone else's hands. We really have to build a whole new infrastructure that's not based on making food as mobile as possible, but it's really meant to make local food trade as efficient as possible. But we're investing in relationships between people. We're investing in farmers who produce healthy food that has produces healthy outcomes for people. And we're making lasting investments with federal money. They're pretty precious dollars that really are capital we want to invest pretty wisely instead of just using it as a cash stream to support a business and keep it active. That's a very interesting observation about subsidies, that at the end of the day, what we're really doing is draining money from from rural communities. And prior to the show, we were talking a little bit about how our true economic recovery really very much depends on rebuilding local food systems. I think that's really true, Melinda. You look at um, you know the history of our, our farm economy over the last hundred years, and it you just see so many signs that money has really been taken away out of our communities by the food system itself. And so making a system that's efficient taking efficient at taking wealth out of our pockets isn't an improvement in our lives. We really need to think very differently about food. And, and I think um, food forces us to think in ways that are more expansive than most things in the economy. We all try to eat three times a day. It's the number two household expense in this country. Um, each household spends about $6,000 or so buying food in a year. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of day-to-day -day transactions. It's a lot of people caring about the quality of their food and the, the way they connect or don't connect around their culture, their heritage of food, and their families. Yeah. I, I, I think it, you know we, we really have to create an infrastructure that cycles wealth that stays in communities. We have to build a food system that connects us, connects producers and consumers, connects consumers with consumers and with stores that builds the capacity so we know how to handle food safely and also that builds healthier people. You know, and, and that's, of course, the focus that I've consistently had and especially looking at, at childhood issues and childhood obesity being at epidemic proportions. And I remember uh, we have a legislator here in Missouri. His name is Wes Schumeyer. 
And he looked at the Annie E. Casey Foundation report, the Kids Count book, that looks at indicators of child well-being. And he said every time a CAFO, a concentrated animal feeding operation, moves into a rural community with the promise, of course, that this is what the county is going to need, it's going to create jobs and it's going to bring money in, every time that happens, all of those indicators of child well-being, which is really, you know, children are our future, that all of those indicators decline. And it really, that statement really links into what you've observed, which is that unless we have strong local rural communities and, and strong local regional food systems, we are not going to have that strong economic base that is required to produce strong, healthy children. I think that's really true, Melinda, and I think um, because food is such a sort of special and, and really sacred item, Native American communities talk a lot about food being a gift from the creator that we are not meant to share, sell but to share with each other, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. It's kind of a bewildering thing to try to figure out what you do with that in an economy that's so focused on the market, but... Uh, most, you know, most traditional societies wouldn't let anybody go hungry because they just knew that was bad for the community and was bad for health and it really divided the community. I think that we really are looking at using food as a way of learning how to have an economy that supports compassion, relationship, reciprocity, resiliency, the kinds of things that food really demands of us and that you don't get in trading widgets or trading high-tech items. And, and my feeling is that because the health outcomes of our food are so bad, because our food economy does such a fine job of separating producers from consumers, has really made us so much less informed than we used to be about how to handle food safely. We lose 5,000 people a year to food poisoning in this country, and we think we are feeding the world with healthy food. It's really quite astounding. I think the, the relationships we learn to build around food, because it's a soft item, because it's something we all need, we can't just say it's okay for Sally or John not to have food. We have to really find a way to include them in that economy in a, in a good way. I think if we don't learn those relationships trading with food, we won't be able to apply them to anything else in the economy, whether it's high-tech factories or green energy or a better housing market or whatever technologies, technologies we create that will give us a better lifestyle um, than the one we've been enduring the last few decades. Well, it's easy for a dietitian to see how food is at the heart of everything. And if you are just joining us, I am speaking with Ken Meter. Ken is the president of the Crossroads Resource Center, which is based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He deals with tools for community self-determination. They are based on farm and food economics, and he's got a well, I should say multiple pages worth of rural economic studies available on his website, and you can go there. Um, you can actually just Google Ken in the Crossroads Resource Center, or you can go to www.crcworks.org. Ken, I want to, before we got on the air, we were talking about a movie called Milk, and it was about Harvey Milk, and Harvey Milk is killed at the end of the movie. I'm sorry if I ruined the movie for those who haven't seen it. But the individual who shot him gets off in about five years, if I'm remembering correctly, and it was called the Twinkie case. And his aberrant behavior was based on his poor diet of junk food. And we were talking about how many students today, many children in school, 
they have maybe Skittles and a soft drink for breakfast and maybe some fast food for lunch and maybe some sort of uh, you know more processed food again for dinner, which is what happens when we don't have those strong local food systems in place to deliver affordable for both the producer and the consumer, healthful, truly nutrient-rich foods, which is certainly at the core of the work that I do. So we need to find some solutions to help rural communities become stronger through their food system. What are the first things that people can do who are concerned? Well, I think uh, people are already doing this, and I think that's that's why one of the reasons I cited the number about the direct sales between farmer and consumer. You can just see folks, especially in New England, in the Minnesota to Chicago area, in the West Coast, really reaching out and saying, I want to buy direct from a farmer I know. I think that's especially true with meats right now. People just really are feeling like they want to have that connection. They want to know the practices. and. Making those connections either by buying directly from a farm or going to a farmer's market or working through a buying club or going to a food cooperative that sells food from farmers you know. And a lot of grocers are also selling food from local farms. That That's terrifically important. And it's not, you know, not just it's local. It's a good thing it's local, but it's also the fact that you know more about where it came from. You can visit the farm. You can have them in your community. And you get a set of relationships rather than simply a product that you buy and then consume. That's, I think, the key thing that we all need to do. Um, But we also have a lot of work to do in our counties, in our cities, about setting up policies that promote efficiency in local food trade, that help us imagine what would happen if the price of oil goes up so high we're paying, you know, $5 or $10 a gallon for gasoline. And we really cannot ship food from California or from Argentina as readily as we can now. We really haven't done much thinking about that possibility and how do we shape our society so we have some survivability in the case of their of a difficulties in, in having that kind of food transported long distances like we do now. We also need some federal policy that's going to really create more investment in our rural communities and investment in urban agriculture, training of young farmers, building warehouses and distribution points and fueling this on green renewable energy that's also produced locally because that's what's going to give our locales the competitive edge uh, in the case of oil prices really going to the roof. You know, I, I was looking through some of the reports that you've done and one of them is food with the farmer's face on it. And I know when we look at the sales at farmers markets, they have skyrocketed over recent years. I, I agree with you that people are very hungry to make that connection, and I've always believed that food tastes better when we know who produces it and under what conditions. But I've also recognized in talking with farmers myself that there are barriers out there, you know, where the where the regional infrastructures have been basically dismantled, and so it becomes more difficult. You know, a farmer's market where you're buying spinach is one thing, a farmer's market where you're able to have a choice between different meat producers is quite another. So I know that uh, Farm Aid is going to be in St. Louis. I'm sure there will be many policy pieces and advocacy opportunities through that organization. What can we as consumers, uh, what, is the, what is the ask for us? When I talk to my legislators in Washington and even locally, what, should I be asking for specifics? Well, there's so much to ask for. Um, it's, it's hard to make a short list, but 
clearly, you're right. I mean, we want to support all the things you mentioned. We want to support, you know, healthy farmers markets. We want to support local food distribution networks so that uh, if you have 25 small growers, they're not all going to a, a, a distribution center with their old pickup truck, but there's some efficiency created in bringing that to market in some kind of a, a efficient and least expensive possible manner. Uh, I think we're going to really need to rely much more on greenhouses and hoop houses to extend our season, so we have to invest in that kind of infrastructure that lets us have fresh spinach in the fall months or in the spring months when we don't think we can have it in Minnesota or Wisconsin, like you know, like we can get it from California right now or, or, or New Mexico. What do you say to this argument for cheap food? Now, I'll give you an example. I was recently at the Missouri Governor's Food Safety Summit, and there was a gentleman there representing Tyson. And he said, well, the last thing we want to do is raise the price of food because so many people can't afford to eat. And he didn't accept any questions publicly. But in the back of my mind, I thought to myself, many of these large-scale industrial food producers really do benefit from the subsidies that we as taxpayers pay out. So this whole idea of cheap food is really subsidized by taxpayer food. Um, how do we how do we speak about this topic? Well, I think we speak patiently and, and slowly because, it's, again, it's a complicated subject and we have to sort of take it one small bite at a time to cover the whole field. But what you say is true. Um, you know, a large, lot of large processors have a subsidy, both because farmers are producing at less than the cost and reduce the product, but also many large firms have been subsidized by tax policies that are to their advantage in getting bigger, and we need to kind of really think carefully about why we incentivize getting large if there's no real positive benefit. And, uh, you know, the data I'm looking at in terms of the food economy, it's really quite striking that for all of the larger processors we have, the larger feedlots, the confined animal operations. You don't see any increase in income for farmers producing livestock. Just the contrary. They're actually earning less today than they were in 1969, even though they're producing many, many more animals. So we have to think carefully about what we have and the system we really are about. But we also have to realize that we're not paying for the environmental costs of our food system. When something is polluted, when we have chemicals that remain in the soil or they go down the Mississippi River and create a dead zone in the Gulf of, of Gulf of Mexico when we have atrazine in every rainfall. We don't pay for that when we pay for food at the store. And we're going to have to bring in the awareness that if we don't pay for that at the front end to keep those things from being problems, we will have health problems and additional costs later on. Well, Ken, um, I knew that our 30 minutes together was going to fly. So I would like to offer you an invitation to come back. And in the meantime, I would like to invite our listeners to go to your website, which is the Crossroads Resource Center, www.crcworks.org, and uh, do some research. And we will have you back to talk about more of the wonderful reports that you have there. Thank you so much for your work. And thank you so much for spending time with us. I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you so much, Ken. My pleasure, Melinda. Thank you.